0: This is Pulse One Year Later. As a news organization, 90.7 WMFE has a responsibility to acknowledge and mark the passing of one year since the tragic shooting at Pulse Nightclub that claimed 49 lives, left dozens more wounded, and had such a profound and lasting effect on our community. But as a newsroom made up of individuals who call Orlando home, we know what our neighbors know that the events of June 12th's early morning hours are already seared into our memories, that there's less to be gained from revisiting or reanalyzing the timeline of those events and more to learn from each other. So we're focusing this special program on the stories of people, people who survived and how they're moving forward, people who were lost and how they're remembered, and people here and around the world who were moved to respond in the wake of the worst mass shooting in modern U.S. history that happened one year ago today on our doorstep. We begin by hearing from survivors. I checked in on Amanda Grau. She was one of many who hid in a bathroom as the initial gunfire erupted, then was trapped during the three hours that gunman Omar Mateen terrorized people inside the club. She was shot multiple times. Over the past year she 's worked to recover from her injuries, even heading back to her job as a certified nursing assistant in late February.
1: The first blow that I received was underneath my arm, and also um, the second blows in third and fourth were um, my uh, my right leg my ankle and then also another shot to my back so when I had gotten to Orlando Hospital I had to have uh, three surgeries underneath my arm nothing on my legs because it went it went straight through I had to get a a graft done uh, so they had to clean out the debris for the first surgery out of my arm and then the second one they had I had to go back and they had to put a pump underneath my arm that suctions all the I guess the old blood, I should say. Then my third and final one was to go and get the graft on, which they took a piece of skin from my right thigh, and that's what I have underneath my armpit as of right now.
0: Where has the shooting and the reaction to it left you with your faith in the world, in humanity? Uh,
1: I try to still think of a positive outlook on things in society. I don't hate the world or anything like that or think anything like that. I thank God every day that I was able to be able to make it and to still be here with my family. I just hope that one day that we all can hopefully, hopefully we can wake up and just come together and just be kind and love and and show each other kindness.
0: Amanda Grout, what can Orlando do for you? Is
1: there anything? I would ask them to still continue to be to be strong, to show kindness, love, peace, and just to remember the the people that lost their lives and the ones that were injured and just to keep their families in their prayers.
0: What are you looking forward to, Amanda? Any specific goals or dreams that you'd like to share with us?
1: Uh, Yes, I am. I'm looking forward to finally getting to marry the love of my life, Elizabeth. We have a date December 16th of this year. And then as far as after that, um, I'm looking forward to going to Tokyo for my daughter's 16th birthday next year in the summer. Uh, we were supposed to do it this past year, but, it, you know, I wanted to get better and also get better, so I was able to walk down the aisle as well. I also i am looking forward to uh, eventually going back to school as well.
0: Amanda Grau, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Also hiding in the Pulse bathroom that night was Orlando Torres. When the gunman came in, Orlando curled up on his side on top of a toilet to try to keep his feet from showing under the stall. But in the chaos, someone who'd been shot tried to push into the stall as well, and Orlando fell to the floor. He remembers feeling the shooter touch his back with the tip of a gun, not knowing if he would live or die.
2: I I lost many friends. I've lost close to 15 friends uh, that tragic evening, and and also friends that I didn't even know they were in the next bathroom stall that I was in, uh, in the restroom.
0: Orlando Torres' story was part of WMFE's Spanish podcast project called Orlando, Un Año Después, or Orlando One Year Later. Two of the collaborators on this project were 90.7's Crystal Chavez and founder of the Orlando Latino blog, Maria Padilla. She's also former editor of El Sentinel. Let's start with you, Crystal. You interviewed Orlando Torres for your podcast on Latin Night. What is Latin Night like in Orlando a year after Pulse?
3: Yes, Latin Night, I went out to Parliament House uh, Thursday night when they have their Latin Night. Um, there was a lot of people. It wasn't super packed, um, but I did speak to many of the patrons, uh, many of them who said, you know, we've got to keep living life and we're not going to let Pulse stop us from going out with friends and family and celebrating birthdays and such. Now, they did talk about how they are A lot more vigilant now and and aware and look for the exits and um, watching out, but they're not letting it stop them. Um, And people are, are starting to get back out again, though there are some survivors who to this day still haven't gone back out, and that's understandable.
0: Tell us a little more about the other themes explored in the Spanish podcasts, Crystal.
3: So we looked at mental health. We looked at, you know, Hispanic family counseling. They have added more counselors, more than double. I believe they had 22 and now they have something like 47 counselors. Um, there's been a lot of grants going down to fund bilingual, culturally competent counseling uh, for people who are Latinx, LGBT, and Latino. Some of the other podcasts we did: um, one was StoryCorps, and it's a uh, heart wrenching, and the way that StoryCorps is, um, people remembering Louise Daniel Wilson, one of the 49 victims. Um, we talked about uh, law enforcement who and the media who were the first responders to this tragedy and Religion, which is Maria Padilla's podcast.
0: Maria Padilla, you focused on an Orlando evangelical church with a primarily Latino congregation, and the pastor from this church participated in the citywide prayer service after Pulse.
4: That's correct. Uh, we interviewed Pastor Nino Gonzalez of El Calvario Church off of Oak Ridge Road. They are probably the largest Latino evangelical congregation in Orlando area. They have about 4,000 members. And they were uh, pretty prominent during the crisis. I think one of the things that struck me that he said during our podcast is that it was important for El Calvario and probably other churches as well to not further stigmatize the LGBT community that had already been stigmatized because of the shooting and even perhaps attitudes beforehand And and that's why they became a little bit more active and vocal during this whole time.
0: Maria, what are some of the areas of common ground that have come out of the LGBT and religion discussions after the tragedy?
4: I don't know that there's so much common ground as um, sort of opening of ground to a certain extent, which is to say that perhaps we had communities that weren't really in dialogue. And now... Uh, They are. Some of that has been touch and go, to be honest. It has not been uh, continual. And in the case of El Calvario, I think they kind of fell out of it a little bit, which he uh, admits. Crystal Maria, what do you two hope this project accomplishes? A
3: few things. First, for people to take note of a large and growing segment of our population, one thing um, at Orlando Regional Medical Health, one of our interns, her podcast, looked at how there was a lack of translators for family members. And you had family members translating for other family members. And um, so that's something their ORMC is working on and working on getting people maybe a vest that says they are Spanish speaker. So there are little concrete things like that that can happen.
4: But also I just hope that we serve an underserved community. We have to also remember, if I may add a few things here, um, that this event, this massacre did occur on Latin night. And that is why we have such a very large number of Latinos who were victims and also survivors because it was a night in which Pulse uh, set aside every week to draw Latino uh, patrons to uh, the club. Um, as Crystal says, the uh, podcast is in Spanish, which automatically removes a barrier. For a lot of people who may want to hear it in their own language, Uh, they may know and read about it here and there, but here we are trying to tell them the story one year later in Spanish, so we've kind of removed or reduced that barrier for them.
0: That was Maria Padilla, founder of the Orlando Latino Blog and 90.7's Crystal Chavez, talking about their Spanish podcast, Orlando, Un Año Después. Somos uno this is Pulse, one year later. This is the special program, Pulse, one year later. Doctors and nurses at Orlando Regional Medical Center say they experienced firsthand a flaw in the healthcare system. When a lot of people are hurt at once, the closest hospital gets the most patients. As 90.7's health reporter Abe Abariah finds, that stressed the hospital
5: to its limit. Nine patients died the morning of June 12th at Orlando Regional Medical Center. The dead were lined up in the decontamination area outside the trauma bay, while healthcare workers tried to save the ones who could be saved. There was a moment when nurse Libby Brown realized how bad the Pulse nightclub shooting had been.
0: We didn't have a sheet to cover up a patient that was deceased that was just going to go be lined up with other bodies. So... That was one of the times that I was like, this is very, this is very, very bad.
5: It was utter chaos that morning. Nurses were running up to the blood bank in the hospital, bringing buckets of blood by hand back to the trauma bay. During a trauma, they used pressurized IV bags to pump blood into patients faster, but they were all being used. So nurses were literally standing at the head of the bed, squeezing blood into people by hand. Elizabeth Burroughs is an ER nurse as well. There
1: was so many coming at some point that there were people with gunshot wounds to the chest sitting in the hallway, gaping wounds where they're they're sitting on the floor because we don't have stretchers. Mm -hmm. So we kind of systematically went through and started trying to figure out how could we best help these people.
5: And if that wasn't bad enough, things got worse. Police got the call that there were shots fired at ORMC. This is from body camera footage recently released. No one is exactly sure why they thought there was a shooter at the hospital. Maybe someone heard the shots being fired three blocks down the road and thought it was happening at the hospital. Maybe one of the patients panicked. Regardless of why it happened, at 3.19 a.m., the call came out. There was a shooter inside the ER at Orlando Regional Medical Center. Police drove over to the hospital, guns drawn. The hospital was put on lockdown as police followed a trail of blood. They eventually handcuff one of the victims, who had the same style facial hair as the shooter. In the body cam footage, healthcare workers are seen crossing paths with police in the halls of the hospital.
6: We know we're still on lockdown, right? We don't think yeah. I know. We're okay. still on lockdown. I'm going to the ED? Yeah. yeah. Straight, halt, straight
7: down our and stay. All right, get out
5: of the halls. But healthcare workers continued caring for patients as police were looking for an active shooter. Dr. Chad Smith was a trauma surgeon working in the ER that night.
8: You know, I tell the story of one of our interns that took a patient to the operating room during the Code Silver, and this patient was dying, and she rolled the patient out there and did her job to take the patient to the operating room thinking that she could be shot you know and not just in in the trauma bay but rolling down the hall into the elevator etc
5: Smith remembers co-workers texting their loved ones but still working on patients there was no shooter but combined with the overwhelming number of patients the morning of June 12th was the hardest shift of their lives A. Beriah 90.7 news Feel my
4: pose. with your head on my heart you
2: know just as, hard as yours Feel my
6: pose. Oh.
0: That song is one of the innumerable works of art created after the shooting. In the face of incomprehensible tragedy, people often look for answers, for some way to help, or at least for solace in art. That's according to Jim Helsinger, artistic director of the Orlando Shakespeare Theatre, and the man behind perhaps the most visible symbol of artistic community response, the angel action wings, 10-foot wingspan made of white fabric and PVC piping. Helsinger and an army of volunteers first created and wore the wings to protect mourners at a pulse victim's funeral, from protesters who'd flown in from Kansas to picket across the downtown Orlando street.
8: There were easily a 1,000 people on those two city blocks, all holding banners in support of the people that we had lost and in support of Orlando and its its unity and its pride. And that, but that was... Uh, Incredibly moving. So it was everybody and us standing directly across from the Westboro Baptist Church. And they began chanting hateful things. So we started singing. And we sang what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And that feeling of love on one side of two city blocks from Orlando and hatred from the other corner um, was just an incredible experience of how love can conquer hate
0: were there a couple of moments that stood out to you that you'd like to share with us
8: I remember there had been a lull and uh, they started yelling again I was standing next to Michael Wansey, who's a leader in the gay community here and they started shouting something particularly terrible and I held his hand and he held mine and we started singing amazing grace together and i've probably never in my life known that I was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing to help others than that moment. So that was uh, that experience of the counter protest.
0: Jim Helsinger, the angels wore the wings at the funeral of Drew Leinanen. What did you hear from his family and friends afterwards?
8: The thank you for being here, which we heard from many members of the crowd, was amazing. Drew's family went down a different street and around, so they were able to avoid it completely. But there were about three or 400 mourners who all came down that street. So at one point they said, we want you to part to either side so the mourners can come by. So the angels and the hundreds of counter-protesters, we parted sides, again blocking the Westboro Baptist Church. And then hundreds of all these people kept walking by us. And that's how it was really intended to work, so that they could get to the funeral without having to walk by these shouts of hate and everything about you and your life is wrong and God hates you, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think anyone, any friend, family member, or acquaintance wants to hear that God hates someone when they're on the way to their funeral.
0: How has the experience with these angel wings changed you? What has stayed with you?
8: I've been in the theater almost my whole life. I love theater. I love how it speaks to the soul. But I've never seen it do anything as powerful as this. I've never seen its function as social action in this way.
0: Jim Helsinger is the artistic director of the Orlando Shakespeare Theater. This is Pulse, One Year Later. You're listening to the special program, Pulse, One Year Later. Here in Orlando, we have a profound sense of lingering effects from the Pulse nightclub shooting. Those who were directly affected grapple with long recoveries, difficult memories, post-traumatic stress. Some of that hurt is felt by the larger community. And yet, we also see signs of a city showing a new degree of solidarity with its LGBTQ members. But here in Orlando... We're in the eye of the storm, and it's hard to see the impact of Pulse from a larger perspective. Dan Savage has that insight. He's a columnist, the voice of the Savage Lovecast, and the founder of the It Gets Better Project, a group that offers support to LGBTQ youth.
6: There's something about social media and the way social media puts us all in one place, all at one time. And I lived through the worst days of the AIDS epidemic uh, in the gay community, and one of the things that kind of was upsetting was people being grief filters, claiming grief and pain that wasn't their own, and uh, so I don't want to suggest that that's what's going on here. But uh, I really do feel like everyone felt present in Orlando and impacted directly because of the way we live on social media. Less directly, and I think with less impact than, of course, people who were there uh, and people who were, you know, geographically more closely situated and felt more personally threatened. But, I really feel like everyone uh, all across the country I think that 's one of the reasons you saw this response. Everyone felt that this was close by, that this was nearby, that we were virtually there, and that 's the power of social media and it I think created feelings of empathy, not just in the Orlando community for the victims and or in the Orlando community for Orlando but across the country for the victims and for Orlando.
0: The role that clubs play in the LGBT community is sometimes one of a safe space. And we're hearing that people shied away from the clubs here in Orlando after the shooting. Based on what you're hearing, did the shooting make members of the LGBT community outside Orlando feel less safe going out to the clubs? Was there a violation of that feeling of having a safe and comfortable place to be?
6: Absolutely. Um, I had friends here in Seattle who were afraid to go out, afraid of some lunatic with easy access to a gun deciding to be a copycat mass murderer. So yeah, people were nervous and afraid. People also felt then, I think, compelled to go out to confront their fears and to not be cowed. Uh, We also had another incident in Seattle a few years ago where someone threatened to uh, attack people in the bars. And the response of the community was for everyone, including members of our city council, to go on a gay bar crawl uh, one night and to fill up the bars and show that we weren't afraid. But paradoxically, those moments where you go out to show you're not afraid, you're actually confronting and staring down your fears. You are afraid, and you're going out despite those fears.
0: Has it raised the LGBT community's profile, in your opinion? (sighs)
6: Yes, and it's a tragedy that it takes a tragedy. You know, it took the brutal killing of Matthew Shepard for people to start discussing hate crimes in relationship to LGBT people. It took the HIV-AIDS epidemic for people to see gay love for what it was, the equivalent of, and as deeply felt and as meaningful as straight love. It takes something like Orlando for people to realize that the people in in queer bars, the lesbian, gay, bi, trans, Latina people at Pulse are human beings, not just abstractions, uh, not just these clichés, but human beings with, with families. And in a way, that's what the AIDS epidemic did. People were dying, and it wasn't just gay people who were being impacted. It was straight people, straight friends, straight family members who were being devastated by the losses. And what Orlando demonstrated, what these deaths demonstrated, was that queer people aren't living on an island all unto themselves. Queer people come from straight communities, straight families, and we're knit into the wider community. And when you rip out, as the HIV-AIDS epidemic did, hundreds of thousands of us, or you take out 50 of us in one community, quickly what you see is that queer people are important, that queer people are loved, and that queer people are not in a silo labeled queer all by themselves, that we are part of our communities. And that's why the wider Orlando community was so devastated by this attack.
0: Do you think with what's happened, the LGBT community has a role to play in gun control? And if so, what is that role or what do you think it should be?
6: Obviously, we all have a role to play in demanding sane gun control policies. And the LGBT community absolutely has a role to play. You know, some there are times when a tragedy gives you a platform, and you want to not seem exploitative or not seem exploited or not feel exploited, but you want to seize those opportunities to, in the wake of a tragedy, create progress on a difficult issue like gun control. And I was thrilled and heartened to see so many queer people stepping up and making the battle for sane gun control policies their battle in the wake of the Pulse Massacre.
0: What struck you the most about the response to the shooting? Was there a singular moment or was there a broad overarching concept? What struck you the most?
6: Just the tsunami of love and support that you saw pour forth and the stories that were told and stories that were told in the wake of it that aren't often told about queer people of color who are often overlooked or not included in the narrative about queer lives. Um, that, That was what really struck me. Um in the wake also of, of, of Pulse, what you saw was when I mean, you saw the whole community come out and say, "This is this happened to all of us because queer people are a part of our community too. They are part of the us. And so you saw, you can see glimmers of the progress even in the giant dark cloud of the event itself. Those glimmers of progress can give us the strength and hope to get out there and fight and create the change that needs to be created to make a better world, not just for queer people, but for all people.
0: What do you want to say to members of Orlando's LGBT community and those who were at Pulse who may be listening to this?
6: I'm not sure that I want to say much. Uh, I think it's our job to listen to the Orlando community and to listen to people who were at Pulse and who witnessed it, survived it, and are still... I'm sure processing the grief and coming to a deeper understanding of, of it and uh, of themselves and, and the meanings of it. And so I think at this point I've been speaking for a while. And at this point, maybe uh, my job is to shut up and listen.
0: Dan Savage, syndicated columnist, voice of the podcast, the Savage Love Cast, and founder of the, it gets better project. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the special program, Pulse, one year later. As of today, June 12, 2017, Pulse nightclub still stands, closed, surrounded by fences covered with artwork and a year-old makeshift memorial. What does the future hold for the site of the nightclub? 90.7's Amy Green says the club's owner wants to give mourners a space and plans a permanent memorial and museum at Pulse.
9: Not far from downtown Orlando, the Pulse nightclub sits silently as cars whiz by and mourners examine the artwork, candles and flowers left with care on the hot pavement out front. Jim Marshall is from Seattle.
5: That's the value to me of coming here. I, I can move through a lot of the sadness and the anger and move into that place of love and gratitude and,
6: and experience this very sacred hollow place it's a blessing.
9: Marshall slouches on a yellow strip that once marked a parking space at the gay nightclub as he surveys the scene. A screen featuring the rainbow colored murals of local artists hangs from a chain link fence surrounding the club. It serves as a happy shroud for the carcass of a building which is painted black as it always was. This is the outpouring that inspired Pulse owner Barbara Poma's plans for memorial and museum. The project would be modeled after one's marking acts of terrorism in New York City and Oklahoma City.
3: I've handed property over and the project over our families and survivors and, and everyone here in Orlando and the world. She
9: established two groups of survivors, family members, and others touched by the tragedy to oversee the process. Her One Pulse Foundation will fund the effort. Eventually, she'll solicit bids from designers.
3: We have no idea how long it's going to take. You don't know if it's going to be one year, three years, five years, um, and I think putting a time on it um, is unrealistic and it could create pressure, unnecessary pressure for a lot of people, especially the families, because since our process is starting so you know, within the one-year mark, some people aren't ready yet.
9: Ken Foote, author of the book Shadowed Ground, America's Landscapes of Violence and Tragedy, says only within the last generation has there been a need to learn from these acts and honor the dead.
2: These memorials for these, these horrible shootings and so forth are relatively new. People seem to think that we've always done this sort of thing, but the sense of shame that's often attached to these events often in the past made it very difficult for people to mark these, these events.
9: Myra Alvier always knew she would be involved. Her 25-year-old daughter, Amanda, was among those slain at Pulse. Amanda chillingly snapchatted the attack, sending around the world the fast-tempo, percussive sounds of the gunman's deadly fire. My daughter died there. Why would I not be involved? That's, you know, she is my priority. Everything that has to do with my daughter, I'd be there. That's my baby. Myra envisions a place of beauty and peace at Pulse with trees. My daughter's life was taken there and so many others. And somehow when I visit there, it's just like the angels embrace me somehow. It's just I feel their their love. You know, it's just a feeling I have. And I don't want that feeling to go away. A year after an act of hate, she wants to provide a space of love. Amy Green, 90.7 News.
0: This is the special program, Pulse, One Year Later. I'm Nicole Darden-Creston. You're listening to the special program Pulse One Year Later. This time belongs to the people who were at Pulse Nightclub on June 12, 2016. First, some survivors share their thoughts on the past year, what's changed for them, and where they go from here.
6: Just uh, grateful to be alive because just after seeing what occurred, I don't even know how. I'm alive today. I always
2: try to say that no matter what, everybody has a number. Everybody, and we don't know it. In history, everybody has a number. It wasn't my number that night. So you're not gonna stop living life. You're not gonna live in a shell.
4: I think it's really just me getting new experiences by going outside. That's the biggest thing. Like, I can't have a new experience by just sitting in the house, processing everything. So that's really what it is.
5: I love this coffee shop it has like a more home kind of feeling. It's just quiet, and everybody's here, and I like it.
6: And I consider myself very lucky to be here today.
4: So it's good for us to have something positive to look forward to and come together and help each other out.
1: I'm looking forward to finally getting to marry the love of my life, Elizabeth. Um, We have a date uh, December 16th of this year. We're going to be getting married.
3: He
5: intended to break my back, but he didn't break my spirit, okay?
2: Just live your life the way you like to live. Enjoy it with whoever you like to l- enjoy it with. Share it with whoever, you know. Don't let nobody take that away from you. Don't let that fear. Just keep enjoying life.
6: If
5: I push forward after being in the hospital in critical condition, almost dying, whatever you're going through in your life, you can go through it. You could rise. You could get out of it. You can not just, you can do it.
1: I'm looking forward to uh, eventually going back to school as well, uh, doing classes for my RN.
4: I've been really inspired to continue writing as far as like poetry and songwriting.
5: I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. So in one of the movies, Dumbledore tells Harry Potter that happiness can be found even in the darkest you know, places,
4: only if you remember to turn on the light. Keep the unity going as far as the the community. And when I say community, I mean the human community. <laughs> so everyone of uh, any background, just come together and be there for each other, be a little more compassionate uh, than we have been in the past. So cry out, Orlando,
3: let your tears flow. We
0: heard from Amanda Grau, Angel Santiago, Jeff Xavier, Orlando Torres, falls. Patience Carter, and Tony Marrero.
3: A river that leads to. an ocean of sorrow that cries out
4: for peace Bells
0: will ring out in Orlando and across the world 49 times in honor of the 49 lives lost one year ago. These are their names.
2: Stanley Almodovar III, 23 years old.
7: Amanda Alvear, 25 years old.
2: Oscar A. Aracena Montero, 26 years old.
7: Rodolfo Ayala Ayala, 33 years old.
2: Antonio Devon Brown, 29 years old.
7: Darryl Roman Burt II, 29 years old.
2: Ángel Candelario Padró, 28 years
7: old. Juan Chavez Martínez, 25 years old.
2: Luis Daniel Conde, 39 years old.
7: Corey James Connell, 21 years old.
2: Tevin Eugene Crosby, 25 years old.
7: Dianca Didra Drayton, 32 years old.
2: Simón Adrián Carrillo Fernández, 31 years old.
7: Leroy Valentín Fernández, 25 years old.
2: Mercedes Marisol Flores, 26 years old.
7: Peter O. González Cruz, 22 years old.
2: Juan Ramón Guerrero, 22 years old.
7: Paul Terrell Henry, 41 years old.
2: Frank Hernández, 27 years old.
7: Miguel Ángel Honorato, 30 years old.
2: Javier Jorge Reyes, 40 years old.
7: Jason Benjamin Josephat, 19 years old.
2: Eddie Jamodroy Justice, 30 years
7: old. Anthony Luis Laureano Disla, 25 years old.
2: Christopher Andrew Leinenen 32 years old.
7: Alejandro Barrios Martinez, 21 years old.
2: Brenda Lee Marquez McCool, 49 years old.
7: Gilberto Ramon Silva Menendez, 25 years old.
2: Kimberly Morris. 37 years old.
7: Akira Monet Murray, 18 years old.
2: Luis Omar Ocasio Capó, 20 years old.
7: Geraldo A. Ortiz Jiménez, 25 years old.
2: Eric Ivan Ortiz Rivera, 36 years old.
7: Joel Rayón Paniagua, 32 years old.
2: Giancarlos Méndez Pérez, 35 years old.
7: Enrique L. Rios, Jr., 25 years old.
2: John C. Nieves Rodríguez, 27 years old.
7: Xavier Manuel Serrano Rosado, 35 years old.
2: Christopher Joseph Sanfeliz, 24 years old.
7: Ilmarí Rodríguez Sullivan, 24 years old.
2: Edward Sotomayor, Jr., 34 years old.
7: Shane Evan Tomlinson. 33 years old.
2: Martín Benitez Torres, 33 years old.
7: Jonathan Antonio Camuy Vega, 24 years old.
2: Juan P. Rivera Velázquez, 37 years old.
7: Luis S. Vielma, 22 years old.
2: Frankie Jimmy de Jesús Velázquez, 50 years old.
7: Luis Daniel Wilson León, 37 years old.
2: Gerald Arthur Wright, 31 years old. For peace, for peace.